Well, Psalm 57 is where we are this morning. And, uh, and, and in these psalms that we're looking at, the, the, the psalm that, uh, that uh, George had a couple of weeks ago, that Barton had last week, and now um, what we're looking at this week, and several of the other psalms we've looked at, we've noticed that there has been a direct connection, or we've been able to, to find the connection between uh, the psalm that David wrote and the event in David's life. And so we certainly experienced that last week as we looked at what David was thinking and feeling his response to God in light of his fleeing to Gath, fleeing to the Philistines, and then fleeing them and ending up in the cave in 1 Samuel 22. Well, the question that uh, we have to ask ourselves as we begin Psalm 57, looking at the heading there where it says, to the choir master, according to the tune, do not destroy. That must have been a really cool tune, by the way, because several psalms are to the tune of do not destroy. Um, And David must have liked that that tune. He said, a midcom of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So then the question becomes, can we find this? Do we see this in the Old Testament? And some scholars would say, well, yeah, this is uh, 1 Samuel 22, uh, when he fled from Gath to the cave. Only I don't think that other scholars will say, well, it's, it's actually 1 Samuel 24, um, when he's in the cave, he and his men are in the cave, and Saul comes in. And I, I think I would lean towards, we don't know exactly, we're not exactly sure, but I would lean towards 1 Samuel 24, because it, it specifically says he's fleeing from Saul. Um, whereas in 1 Samuel 22, he was fleeing from Gath. Now, I know there's, in some sense, he was fleeing from Saul. But let's think for a second about that experience that David had in 1 Samuel 24. It's a fascinating story. It's one of those that reminds you that, uh, that, that, that again, the Bible can't just be a bunch of made-up stuff. It can't be someone just writing to try to get you convinced about a religion. Because the story in 1 Samuel 24 is so kind of raw and basic and base that it would be something you wouldn't naturally put in a religious book. It says that, that David, it, it recounts in, from 1 Samuel 22, 23, and then in 24, that, that Saul is pursuing David. So he's, David is feeling threatened for his life. I mean, Saul's coming after him with a contingent of soldiers to kill David. And David is on the run, really hiding from place to place. Uh, and in, in 1 Samuel 24, it says that... Uh, Saul and his men get to this certain place and that Saul needs to go to the bathroom. So he, go, he goes, oh, there's a cave over there. He wants to get a little privacy. And so Saul goes, and it says in the Bible in 1 Samuel 24, to relieve himself. Again, that just reminds us, the Bible we have before us, these guys were writing real history. They weren't just trying to create a religion. Because if you're just trying to create a religion, you don't write about, oh, and then, then Saul went to a cave to relieve himself. They're just writing what happened. So Saul's in, Saul's in there relieving himself, thinking he's getting some privacy from the thousands of men that are out there. And it turns out that he's gone to relieve himself in the very cave where David and his men are hiding from them. So that must have been an awkward moment. Uh, now, Saul doesn't know that, but David, you know, they're trying to hide. And all of a sudden, here comes King in to, to you know, use the bathroom in the cave. Um, so it's dark. Saul thinks he's by himself. David's men says, you need to go kill him. And David's thinking, gosh, this would be a great opportunity. I could solve all my problems right now. Uh, 
David uh, doesn't kill him, but it says he, he, he sneaks up to him. Again, I'm, this is one of those things you're like, man, I wish we could have been there in history, right? He sneaks up to, to Saul while Saul's going to the bathroom and cuts off a corner of his robe. Um, that, I mean, that talk about a ninja. That David, he was a warrior, right? So David gets a piece of his robe and then brings it back to the men. And the men are like, this is amazing. This is your opportunity. David, let's kill him. We kill Saul. You become king. You claim the throne. This is perfect. God has given us exactly what we need. And David says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And then it says that David became overwhelmed. It says that that his heart uh, just broke. His heart was moved because he thought to himself, what am I doing? I, I have... I have, by sneaking over there and proving that I could kill him, even the thought of me trying to kill King Saul, he's God's anointed right now. Why, why have I taken these things into my own hand? And of course, I'm fascinated by this because, I, again, I'm thinking if I'm David and I'm running and, tr- and I'm praying for God's deliverance for me and then the very guy who I'm running from decides, you know, to relieve himself in the cave next to me, I'm thinking maybe this was God's answer to prayer. Instead, David responds differently. And he trusts the Lord. And we're going to see that here in Psalm 57. Let's let's read the way David reacts even amidst these threats and notice some things about his reaction in the midst of these threats. Samuel, uh, excuse me, Samuel. Uh, Psalm 57, David writes this, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be be over all the earth. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This uh, psalm divides very nicely and neatly into two sections that are, that are uh, set apart by the refrain that we see in verse 5 and 11, the exact same verses. It's a, it's a chorus uh, to this psalm. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over all the earth. And these two 
uh, verses that, that go with, these, with, these chorus, with this chorus, with this refrain, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, define David's choosing to trust. Notice that what we're going to see, and what you constantly see in Psalms, is that David is not just hiding from his enemies. David is hiding in God. It's not just about fleeing from your enemies. It's about fleeing to God. And in the midst of the threats David is facing, in the midst of all these, he is going to choose to trust. In fact, in that moment in the cave, he did something that, that is, not, is not my nature, and I don't think it's your nature either. Instead of taking the situation into his own hands, having been given the opportunity to do so, David instead chose to trust God to deal with Saul. Even when it was right there for the taking, for David to be able to put that threat away himself, David chose to trust. He chose to trust and he reflects on it in the verses that we have here. And you can just see as it goes down what what this trust looks like. First of all, in verse 1, the Lord himself is my shelter, David says. And we can say that ourselves. The Lord himself is our shelter. David uses the word refuge there twice. And uh, in, in our ESV translations, in fact, all the English translations don't do the best job of revealing to us that in the Hebrew there is a sense in which the first mention of refuge is the, what David has done in the past, that he, that he has been taking refuge in God and that he is now and will take refuge in God. And so there's a sense of a, of a past commitment that David had and a present commitment David has. David says, I'm not going to change from taking refuge. You yourself are going to be my shelter. And scholars have debated is that when it says shelter of your wings, is it, is it meaning something uh, as simple as that, that using a metaphor for God himself being like uh, a bird that guards um, its, its, its young under his wings? Is it as simple as that? Or is it referring to the wings of the seraphim on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant? So fleeing to the place that God's temple, fleeing to that place, was meant to be a place of refuge. Well, while, while that thought, while that picture might be beautiful and it's not inaccurate, it's probably most likely that what's happening here is just a description of what, of what it looks like to be guarded uh, like, like, a, like a bird guards its young. And he's saying, I, I'm protecting you. I'm fleeing to a place where I'm experiencing your protection, where I, where I know you are covering me and you're taking care of me. You yourself are my shelter. And here's the key. Not my circumstances. I'm not looking for a deliverance by what you do. I'm looking for a deliverance in who you are. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm guarded and I'm protected by that. What else does this trust look like? How does he display this trust? He says in verse 2 something very fascinating. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. You know, I, probably a lot of us in here, if you grew up in the church, um, we grew up, didn't we, with that message that often was given to us, at least it was my experience sometimes, that there was this, uh, that there was God's will for Todd or there's, 
you know, God's will for you. And, and we got to be careful that we stay in God's will. And, and, and while that was intended to mean that we be careful to just obey God, we started to begin to think that somehow out there, there was this certain path that was the perfect path for us, for Todd. And if we did something wrong, uh, we sinned, we, took, we made a wrong choice, we went to the wrong college, chose the wrong career, that somehow we were going to be off the perfect path and God was going to be like, okay, well, you'll, we'll make a path here for you. And we get a little nervous. i got to make sure I'm in the perfect will of God. That's not the way Scripture describes it. In fact, what's beautiful, it doesn't describe it right here. It's not that you and I have to fulfill our purpose for ourselves. It's that God himself will fulfill his purpose in you. So not only in spite of, of my failures and poor choices and even my sin, but somehow through it, God never loses control, uh, loses his sovereignty over me. So I, I'm, I'm never, uh, in, in some sense, I'm never out of God's will when it comes to the fact that God is going to get me where he wants me to go. God is going to fulfill his purpose in me. That is, man, that is comforting. I know if you're, if you're under... If you're under the age of 40 in this room, um, probably, uh, like most of your generation, you struggle when it comes to God's will uh, in this. You have a tendency to look at the fact that you have multiple options, like, gosh, there's probably three or four girls that would be great to marry. Or you go, man, there's three or four different jobs I'd like to do. And generally, not all, but generally, uh, if you're under 40, your experience has been, oh, no, I'm a little paralyzed by that many choices. And you start to think, goodness gracious, there's three different careers I'd love to, to do. I better choose the right one or I'm not going to be fulfilled in the Lord. And we get paralyzed by that. Let me, let me tell you something that will encourage you and bring you grace. As long as they're not sin, it doesn't matter which one you choose. God will fulfill his purpose for you. In fact, you should take confidence in the fact that there's multiple options and as long as it's not sin, as long as it's not leading you into sin, that's a good option. And God will fulfill his purpose in you. In fact, even if you, even if you choose the quote-unquote the wrong one, don't worry. God will fulfill his purpose in you. Now, if you're, if you're over 40, uh, you've got a different problem. Uh, you either have children or grandchildren that you're a little too panicked about, right? So while you're okay about your options and God fulfilling his purpose in you... If you're over 40, you have a lot of sleepless nights about your children and grandchildren under 40. And you're worried about them. Let me assure you this morning, God will fulfill his purpose for them. You don't have to fulfill the purpose for your children or your grandchildren. It's not up to you. So whew, take a breath, relax. God will fulfill his purpose for your children, for your grandchildren. Choosing to trust. David goes on in verse 3. He talks about the steadfast love from God sent from heaven. What David is saying is here is that, listen, I know that the Lord is awesome in power and enduring in love. And those, that combination is so important. To choose to trust God, you, you need both things. I need both things. I need to know that God is awesome in power and enduring in love. Why do I say awesome in power? Because David says, he will send from heaven. 
He will send from heaven. He is speaking about the, the, the power of God. I know God is in his heavens, and I know that the power, the strength is going to come from there. But then he says, what was he going to send? He's going to send out his steadfast love. Remember we said in the ESV Bibles, when you see the word steadfast love, that's the word hesed, the Hebrew word hesed. And that is his covenant love, his promise-keeping, enduring, forever commitment to you. God will send forth from heaven his hesed, that committed love. And in that, I'm going to experience his tenderness, that he knows me, that he sees me, like, like Barton talked about last week in uh, Psalm 56, verse 8, that he knows our sleepless nights. He's seen us in our sleepless nights. He's kept our tears in, the bo in a bottle. So the, the reason I can choose to trust the Lord is because not only, not only does he know me and does he see my tears and he sees my worries, does he hear my pleas, but he's also powerful enough to do something about it. And so that combination of God's tenderness and his power, God's covenant love, his hesed, and, and the fact that it's coming from heaven, that combination brings me something that I can trust. I can choose to trust that, David says. He goes on in verse 4 and basically comments that the Lord is his peace. Look what it says in verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. And then look what he says. I lie down amid fiery beasts. Later on he's going to talk about awaking the dawn. David says, like Daniel in the lion's den, I can, I can go to sleep here amidst the lions. Or as another uh, place in Psalms that says uh, about the Lord, he gives his beloved sleep. No matter what the situation, for you to be able to, to lie down, to be at peace amid fiery beasts, I lie down. And so the refuge, and this is, this is what we got to remember, was what Barton uh, preached on last week. Refuge in the Lord, peace in the Lord, does not mean escape from trouble. It doesn't mean escape from the storm. It means a refuge in the midst of the storm. I know Barton referenced last week uh, our Chinese brothers and sisters who currently are undergoing uh, the greatest increase of persecution in that country and on that church since uh, the late 40s. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty significant. It's, it's, uh, it's something we should all be praying about and we'll all be more aware of and read more about so we can join with our brothers and sisters uh, there to be praying for them. So we can't, we can't talk about it enough. But of course, what did Barton say? What are we, what are we seeing? We're seeing their understanding of choosing to trust God. So their refuge is not, their refuge is not, Lord, keep me out of prison, keep me from the police. They're not just hiding from their enemies, they're hiding in God. And so what they're experiencing is his peace in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of persecution, they're experiencing peace. They are choosing to trust God. And even as, they, as Barton says, their prayer requests that come to us are not pray that I get released from prison. Their prayer requests are, pray that I would be bold in proclaiming the gospel. Pray that I could start a prayer a, a ministry uh, in the prison. 
They're seeking, they're seeking their refuge in God, not their refuge in circumstances. And so out of that choosing to trust, we then move into the first uh, point or first moment of this, of this chorus. Verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And here at this point, we have an individual emphasis. David is, is speaking he and the Lord, there's a, there's a private worship aspect to this. And what David is saying is, Lord, in my life, in my struggles, be glorified. In my, in my trusting you, in, in, in the fact that you're my refuge and strength, be glorified, be exalted in the earth through my life. That's his prayer. That's, and that's what he's saying. David is saying, I'm praying this, that you would be exalted, that you'd be glorified in my choosing to trust you, in my resting in your peace, resting in your awesome power, in your steadfast love, that you would be glorified as, as, as I do that. And then he does something that's fascinating, even more interesting. I mean, it's very interesting already that in the moment in that cave when he could have solved his threats and his problems with his own hand, that David instead said, no, I'm going to choose to trust the Lord to take care of Saul. I'm not going to take it into my own hands. I'm going to trust him. Then David says, does something even more interesting in verses 6 through 11. He, he bursts out in worship and praise. Now, remember, he's still under threat. He's still running from his life, for his life. Saul's still after him. David is still out in the wilderness. The, the problems haven't been solved. It's not like the problems were solved and David says, oh, I want to offer, a, I want to have a worship service. Let's have a prayer and praise service. No, in the midst of his struggles continuing, David says, let's have a prayer and praise service. And so we see him at this point determined to praise. He's worshiping, he's singing, there's joy there. And his circumstances are not dictating it. That's not determining what's happening here. It, it instantly, all over places we can, we can see this in the Bible, but instantly reminds us of Job, doesn't it? The, the wave after wave after wave of, in, in Job 1 of, of Job receiving uh, horrendous news. Losing all his wealth. Losing his children. And what is Job's response? He tears, he laments, he's honest, he's a real, he's a real human being. It says he, he tears his clothes, he's he is full of sadness. But what does he do? He, he worships. He says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His response is worship and praise despite his circumstances. We see this too. We'll see it later. I'm not sure if we'll get to, to Psalm 137 and 138 next year. Probably. We may, may look at those. But in Psalm 137, uh, the people of Israel there are, in, are being held captive in Babylon. And in that psalm it says, uh, we're here and our, and our captors are demanding. We're slaves here and our captors are demanding that we sing for them. That we sing our songs. And, and the psalmist writes, how can we sing? How can we sing in these circumstances? How can we sing in the midst of, of these troubles and these trials? How can we praise and worship? And then Psalm 38 just switches it. 
it just says, no, we're going to choose to do this. We're going to be determined to praise because Psalm uh, 138, not Psalm 38, Psalm 138, verse 1, the very next psalm says, I will give thanks to God with my whole heart. I will, among the gods, little g, I will sing praise. In the midst of my captivity, in the midst of my trial, I'm going to give praise with my whole heart and I will sing in the midst of this oppression. I'm going to praise you, determined to praise. What does that look like in these verses? Well, first of all, in verse 6, we see this extraordinary deliverance. I I had a hard time deciding what I was going to put in front of, what word I was going to put in front of deliverance. But let me explain what I mean by this. Look at the coupling that exists there. Thinking about the poetry here in Psalms, that it is poetry like Proverbs, wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes. And oftentimes you see a sentence here and then a response here and then another sentence and the response. And often there's a coupling that's intended to give an emphasis here. But this coupling is disrupted. Okay, look what it, look what it says there in verse 6. David writes, they set a net for my steps. That's the first part. And then the response, my soul was bowed down. And then they dug a pit in my way. And you expect something that would parallel my soul was bowed down. That would be the normal Hebrew poetry in the book of Psalms. They did this, my head was bowed down. They did this, my heart was torn. That's, you know, you... But that's, the coupling gets disrupted. Look what it says. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, uh, but they have fallen it to themselves. I thought about putting unusual deliverance or surprising deliverance. But then I thought to myself, no, here's the problem. It's the usual way of God to deliver us in unusual ways. <laughs> So I'm not exactly sure how to say that. That's why I put extraordinary deliverance. It's the usual way of God to deliver us in unusual ways. It's the usual way of God to ignore all the ways we think in our prayers God could deliver us and to do it some other way that we didn't think about at all. It's the usual way of God to take our... uh, offers of advice to him for how he might get this done and to go, yeah, that's great. That looks good. Um, I've got another way. And to do something you and I never thought of. So while, while it's surprising, while it's unusual, if you've lived long enough, it's just not surprising and it's not unusual. But we still get surprised, don't we? We still get surprised. I had this experience just happen to me over the last couple of years. Um, and by the way, I get permission from, from my family. I, I never tell stories without permission. So some of you are like, wow, he's kind of exposing things. No, I'm, 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 I get permission. Um, my youngest uh, is a daughter, Ellie, and, uh, and, and she has, for reasons we've, we've mentioned before, struggled a lot in her life just spiritually. Um, and my, my desire for her, the wanting to fulfill her purpose for her life, I've wanted to take control of that. The Lord has kept me from doing that. Wanting to see her grow in the Lord. And I had all these thoughts of what it would look like when she went off to college. She's now a junior in college. And, 
you know what, she, it, it looked like everything was set up, a perfect scenario for her to get connected to a campus ministry, connected to a uh, small church, she, uh, to, a, to a local church. She seemed eager to do all those things. She's, uh, uh, you know, open to uh, engaging uh, her, her Christian life in fellowship with other people. That looked like it was just all set up perfectly. And for the first two years, it was, nothing happened. <laughs> It's not, she didn't go off the rails. She just, it just went into like a spiritual desert that she caused herself. Literally, everything was available for her all around to grow, and she just didn't take advantage of it, and she just struggled in that by her own doing. So then she tells me she's going to go study abroad, and we, you know, a whole other story. She decides, and it works out, she's going to go to Morocco. And my thought for her spiritually was, well, that's a terrible thing, God. In fact, I even prayed, Lord, if this isn't the right thing, please shut the door. She's going to go to a country that's, you know, 98% Muslim. She won't even be able to find a church. There certainly isn't going to be a campus ministry there. This is going to be a spiritual desert. I mean, talk about, you know, the Sahara Desert. This is the Sahara Desert of spiritualness. The best we can hope for is that she just, Gets out, you know, nothing worse happens. That's my thought. I gave God my list of what he might do to help her spiritually. And I feel like he didn't follow through on that, right? (laughs) But God, his usual way of working is through unusual things. And I'll tell you what. If you want to hear more of the story, you can come ask me later. There has never been a greater and deeper growth spiritually in my daughter's 21 years of life than in the five months or the four months she spent in Morocco. God made a way, even in Christian fellowship and worship, where there was no way. And she came out massively stronger in her spiritual life, deeper connected to her Savior, and deeper connected in Christian fellowship (laughs) than should ever be possible. David is saying, God makes a way where there is no way, and I praise him for that. He goes on to say, in in the midst of this, in praising you, he says, my heart is steadfast, Lord. My heart is steadfast. That's the same word, not hesed, but he's reflecting on the hesed of God, the covenant of law. He's saying, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to hold fast to these things. What is David doing here in his praise? He's reflecting the character of God. He's, he's seeking to be steadfast like God is steadfast. Now we know uh, in theology that uh, we speak about communicable attributes of God and non-communicable attributes of God. The attributes of God are things like his love, his omniscience, uh, he's all-powerful, he's gracious, he's merciful. Those are attributes of God. Some of those are non-communicable, meaning his creation, we as humans, we as men, we can't reflect those. I can't reflect the omniscience of God. I'd like to. It would be really, it would have been really helpful in parenting. But I can't reflect the omniscience of God. That is not a communicable attribute. That's a non-communicable attribute. I can reflect the covenant love of God. I can't do it perfectly. I can, I'm only a reflection of it. But through the grace of God, I'm able 
to reflect that. That is a communicable attribute of God. David here is reflecting a communicable attribute of God. He's reflecting his steadfastness, his faithfulness. David in his praise and worship says, my heart is steadfast. I'm choosing to trust. I'm determined to praise. I'm making these choices. I'm standing strong in this. Sometimes it's just a matter of doing it. That's what David is saying. Sometimes it's not a matter of waiting. You know what to do. We walk out of here, don't we? We know our our Bibles. We study our Bibles. And we're moved by things we hear in God's word. And when we leave here, we just got to do it. (laughs) I thought about that a lot this past weekend. I got to hear my friend Andy Lewis, who's the senior pastor at Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church, preach a sermon on Ezra. And you've got to see this. Turn over to Ezra chapter 10. He was wrapping up uh, his series in Ezra. Remember, Ezra was the, the priest that was leading God's people back to reclaim the promised land. And when he gets there, he finds out that they have, they're, just, they're just involved so much in the culture, they've abandoned their faith. They're like, they're like marrying people that aren't believers. They're just, they're just trying to fit in at all costs. And Ezra calls them to confess them, calls them to repent. And in uh, chapter 10, Verse 1, it says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, and the people wept bitterly. And so now the, the repentance is happening. They're moved. Their hearts are moved. Uh, uh, Ezra's heart is moved. Then it says, Then Skenaniah, the, the son of Jehel, and the sons of Elam addressed Ezra, and they said this, We've broken faith with our God. We have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of us. This, let us therefore make a covenant with God to put away all the wives and children according to the counsel of my Lord and all those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Ezra's moved and says, we've got to do something. I know God's heart in this. The people are moved. We've got to do something. We know this is what we want to do. They're responding. And then look what it says in verse 4. I love it. Arise. For it is your task, we are with you, be strong and do it. What a great verse. We should should maybe end every sermon, every amen with that verse. (laughs) We hear God's word, we're moved by it. All right, arise. It is your task, we are with you, be strong and do it. Just get it done. David is... Seeking in his praise there in verses 7 and 8, I'm just going to do it. My heart is steadfast. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to be there. I'm just going to praise. I'm just going to worship. And then in verse 9, he says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations. Verse 9, notice that worship becomes a witness. David's worship becomes a witness to everyone around him. And now we're moving from something that was, that was personal and private to something that's public and corporate. So David's worship and praise in one sense begins privately and personally. And now it's moving to something public and the language there in the Hebrew is corporate. So I'm determined to praise you personally. And that moves me to publicly praising you, publicly worshiping you. And the worship now becomes a witness to a lost world. 
When you look throughout Scripture and understand the study of worship, what's the, what's the core, what's the point? The core and point of the worship of God is to declare his name among the nation, that's his character, and declare his deeds among the nation, the things he does. So even throughout Psalms, that's what you see. Over and over again, you see the name of God, the character of God declared. We're going to state who God is. We're going to exalt him. And we're going to show you, we're going to recount, we're going to remember the things God has done. That's worship. Very simply, godly worship, whether it's privately, in your, in your personal devotion time every morning, or whether it's publicly, as you gather together with God's people on the Lord's Day, morning and evening, what, what's, what's, the, what's the core? What's supposed to take place? We are supposed to declare the name and character of God, and we are to recount and remember what he has done. That is the, that is the center of worship. And in doing that, it becomes a witness to the lost world. That is the witness. That's a seeker service. A seeker service, an outreach service, ultimately is not one that's completely geared towards the, uh, the, the, the needs and wants of the unbeliever. That, that's, there's, a, there's a place for that, but that's not worship. Worship becomes a witness when we declare the name of God and when we declare his deeds and recount his deeds. And that becomes a witness. That's why I think, brothers, it's so important that we hold fast in our, in our, in our churches and in our private worship and our public worship to making that the center of worship. It's our temptation. It's my temptation, you know, to, to, be, to be moved and to want to lean into worship songs and, and even sermons that have to do with me. You know, that it's, it's all about me and all about what God is doing for me. That's my tendency is to move. I move by that. That's more precious to me. Yeah, because you're a self-centered dirtbag, Todd. That's why it's more precious to you. You don't need that, Todd. You don't need more of you. <laughs> you need more of understanding God's character. What you really need, Todd, is to declare the name of God, his character, and to recount and remember his deeds. That's what you really need. That's worship. That becomes a witness to a lost world. That's an outreach service. And then as he declares the character of God, look what he says about the character of God. I will give, in verse 10, for your steadfast love, your hesed, is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. He declares the inexhaustible grace of God. He says, your covenant love, and, and, and you just, over and over again, the psalmists, the, the, the scripture writers, they, they struggle to find language that's glorious enough to describe the fact that God's hesed, his covenant love, his steadfast love is inexhaustible. They struggle to say his faithfulness is never ending. It's like faithfulness, faithfulness. It's, it's unbelievable. It just never, it's, you, you always can count on it. It never stops. It's to the clouds. You cannot surpass it. Or, or Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, writing about God's grace, he says, the Lord has provided double for all of your sins. However sinful you are, there's two portions for you. <laughs> 
And he's just trying to describe that you can't exhaust it. You can't get to the end of it. There's no way he's praising God in the midst of that. And because it's corporate, and I don't know why this was left off your notes, but letter E should say, may God be glorified in us. You see in verse 5, it was more personal. May God be glorified in my life. Now it's moved in verses 9, 10, and 11 to a corporate and public feel. May God be glorified in us. This is corporate and public. I'd only want God to be glorified in my life personally. But I want God to be glorified in us, in the congregation of God's people. That, that, that today, God would display his glory in our lives. And let me end with this. I don't, I don't know what threat or situation you're in today. Some of you may be in a place of great uh, comfort and going, it's easy for me to praise God today. But I'm sure you've been in a place where it's been tougher. Some of you might be overwhelmed and it was, it was a lot for you to even get here this morning, let alone listen, because your heart is so wretched, full of worry or disappointment or heartache. In the midst of that, can I commend you? Be steadfast. Choose to trust God. Don't take things into your own hands. Choose to trust Him. And I, can I commend to you? Worship and praise Him. Today, today, declare His name. Remember and recount his deeds in your life. And pray the prayer of Psalm 57. May the Lord, may the Lord be exalted in my life today. May his glory be shown in my life. In the midst of this mess, may his glory be shown to all the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thanks is, seems like not enough to, to give to you, to offer to you for even this one psalm, let alone this entire Bible. That you would condescend to us to give us your word and that you would make the word come alive by the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the sending of your Holy Spirit to indwell in us. Who are we that you would send your covenant love from heaven and your faithfulness to us. And yet you have. And so Heavenly Father, we declare today that we are going to choose to trust. We declare today your praise, your name. We recount who you are and what you have done. And we would say with the psalmist, be exalted, O Lord, in all the earth. May your glory go out before all the nations. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.